Hello, Rebecca Mays here for this week's edition of Stick Together, focusing on union news and social justice issues. I want to acknowledge that this program was recorded on the stolen lands of the Kulin Nation and that their sovereignty has never been ceded. This episode of Stick Together was produced on Jarjarurung country and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. It is brought to you on your local community radio station thanks to the Community Broadcasting Foundation. This week I caught up with Dave Fox, Vice President of the Bendigo Trades Hall and AMWU organiser for an update of what's going on for workers in the area. But let's start with some union news. After working hard throughout the pandemic as essential food industry workers, members of the International Union of Food affiliate United Workers' Union went on strike on June 4 in Rooty Hill, New South Wales, for decent wages and fair treatment. Despite being essential in the pandemic, General Mills is refusing to make casual workers permanent despite some having worked there for more than five years. In an announcement to investors and analysts in March this year, it was clear that all this hard work created value for shareholders. They announced that in Europe and Australia, third quarter 2021 organic net sales grew 7%, primarily driven by growth in Old El Paso Mexican food and haagen retail ice cream, and third quarter segment operating profit increased 24% in constant currency. RUF affiliates are mobilising to support the strike at General Mills in Ruhi Hill. You can show your support by signing the petition demanding secure work and fair pay. Go to megaphone.org.au and search General Mills. Food delivery platforms will need to provide workers in New South Wales with protective equipment and induction training under new proposed safety laws hailed by the state government as the toughest anywhere in Australia. It comes after a spate of worker deaths last year over a short period, including four in Sydney, put renewed scrutiny on the industry and its working conditions. The proposed laws, announced on June 5th by the New South Wales Government, will also see workers issued with identification numbers and penalised for repeated unsafe practices. However, the laws have been slammed by the TWU, or Transport Workers Union, saying the targeting and punishment of exploited riders will add to the deadly pressures they face on the job. A recent education and safety blitz found widespread non-compliance with road and workplace safety laws, New South Wales Minister for Better Regulation Kevin Anderson said. With almost 9 in 10 riders not wearing high-vis clothing, some 40% were also observed riding in an unsafe manner, Mr Anderson said. The reforms were recommended in the final report of the New South Wales Government Task Force set up following the deaths in Sydney last year. The state government says food delivery platforms have already committed to 50 actions to improve their riders' health and safety as part of the task force's work. Consultation on the new regulations is set to start in September, the government says, and it expects to finalise them by November. Advocates for food delivery workers have long called for the gig economy to be better regulated. Delivery riders have previously told SBS News they have been earning as little as $10 per hour and placed under extreme pressure to deliver food faster and have accused platforms of bullying and being more focused on profits than workers' rights. 
TWU National Secretary Michael Caine said on Saturday the proposed New South Wales laws unfairly target riders over the symptoms of an exploitative industry they cannot control and they could further endanger the lives of its workers. These new laws are not about protecting the most exploited workers in our society. This is a shield for Silicon Valley behemoths and their sham business models which are literally killing riders on our roads, he said in a statement. Mr Kane said it was disappointing to see the New South Wales government blaming the deaths of the four riders in Sydney on the workforce, rather than the delivery platforms. Riders can lose their below-minimum-wage job in an instant if they cannot meet the unrealistic deadlines set by apps and algorithms, an issue the New South Wales government has refused to listen to or address. Advocates for migrant workers recently told a federal Senate inquiry into the gig economy. Businesses offering sham contracts are leaving migrant staff fighting for crumbs at the bottom of the employment chain. They also recommended the federal government provide information to migrant workers about gig economy workplace rights in their language. The Australian Workers' Union has welcomed a decision to put the joint venture running the Snowy Hydro 2.0 project on notice after the union sounded the alarm on low morale, poor reporting standards and safety hazards. The AWU has been warning the government-owned Snowy Hydro that the joint venture it appointed to run the landmark infrastructure project, Future Generation, has been mismanaging safety and conditions at the site. Complaints raised by workers on site, including over poor fatigue management and unsafe practices, have been fobbed off by the joint venture, which has attempted to pass the buck to labour hire firm NX Blue. After pressure from the union, Snowy Hydro has now expressed serious concerns about the safety issues occurring under Future Generations Watch and ordered the joint venture to develop a comprehensive safety improvement plan. AWU New South Wales Branch Secretary Tony Callanan said it was good to see Snowy Hydro finally acting. He said, The morale I've seen on this project is just about the worst I've seen on any civil construction project. Workers who are raising serious concerns are just being ignored. The joint venture says it's the labour hire company's problem and the labour hire company says the opposite. It's a disgrace that workers engaged on this iconic Australian project would be copying the problems we associate with the industry's worst dodgy labour hire practices. The joint venture tells the labour hire company what to do, but then takes no responsibility for the consequences. The buck passing on safety, the lack of accountability, the aggressive and protracted enterprise agreement negotiations, none of this should be happening on this project. This project should be something Australians feel proud of. This week, the Electrical Trades Union National and New South Wales Secretary Alan Hicks responded to the New South Wales Productivity Commission's white paper, saying nuclear power would be hugely expensive compared to renewable energy and that small nuclear reactors are still a pipe dream. The recommendation around small reactors is one of 60 contained in the white paper, which is supposedly designed to reboot the state's economy. The Productivity Commission has lost the plot if it thinks small modular reactors, a technology that has been just around the corner since the 1970s but still doesn't exist, is the answer to New South Wales productivity growth, Alan Hicks said. Even if someone finally manages to build one that works, the electricity price forecast for their output is six times more expensive than renewables. Why does the Productivity Commission want New South Wales residents paying six times more for their electricity? There are massive offshore wind projects waiting for federal approval off the New South Wales coast near Newcastle, Wollongong and Eden. Rather than 
pie-in-the-sky nuclear nonsense, we should get on with approving this clean energy and getting it into our grid. The Commission says lifting the current ban on nuclear power would provide another source of firming capacity in the grid, but its own report admits a wide degree of uncertainty about small-scale nuclear reactors, mainly due to cost. New South Wales Treasurer Dominic Perrottet said the government will consider everything in the report, but Mr Hicks said the state government must hit the stop button on nuclear power, as the business model for a dirty and dangerous technology did not stack up. Even if they improve the technology, a small modular reactor would take far too long to build and we don't have time to waste in the fight against climate change, Mr Hicks said. Globally, most countries are moving away from nuclear power. Few new reactors are being built and nuclear companies are going bankrupt or facing financial distress. Nuclear power also has the potential to contribute to weapons proliferation. Mr Hicks said the government should instead continue to focus on renewable energy. With a bit of foresight, some investment and some big thinkers, Australia is uniquely positioned in the world to become a renewable energy leader. Boosting the economy, providing more jobs and dealing with climate change are big problems, but nuclear power is not the answer. The Media, Entertainment and Arts Alliance, MEAA, and Victoria Police have had positive discussions following concerns raised by the union about new media accreditation requirements at public protests and rallies. The MEAA was concerned that the decision by Victoria Police to issue identification cards to journalists and photographers had been made without consultation with the union. The MEAA explained that while it understood the need for police to be able to identify and distinguish between legitimate working journalists and the public, the new accreditation system had created confusion and ignored the needs of freelancers and workers from small media outlets. The MEAA are pleased that Victoria Police has acknowledged these concerns and indicated it will accept an MEAA media membership card for identification purposes at protests. All financial MEAA media members are issued with an electronic card when they join the union and the card is updated each financial year. Members can also apply for a plastic card. This week, The Guardian reported that the four private companies responsible for vaccinating the aged care sector have given conflicting accounts about whether the government ever contracted them to inoculate staff, prompting further criticism about the confusing and delayed rollout. The federal government in the early stages of the rollout said it would rely on private contractors to vaccinate 183,000 aged care residents and 339,000 staff using in-reach teams that would attend each facility. But the government's in-reach teams focused overwhelmingly on vaccinating residents and data this week showed that just 32,833 staff, less than 10%, were given the jab by in-reach teams, largely using leftovers from residents in accordance with the government's excess dose policy. The government's panel of surge vaccination workforce providers, Aspen Medical, Healthcare Australia, International SOS and Sonic Clinical Services have since given differing accounts on whether they were contracted to vaccinate staff. Earlier this week, The Age reported that Aspen Medical was never contracted to vaccinate staff, quoting a company spokesman. The company told The Guardian on Thursday that, in fact, it was contractually obliged to vaccinate staff. 
Aspen Medical has vaccination of aged care staff as part of its contractual obligations and in that context has already vaccinated over 20,000 staff, a spokesman said. Healthcare Australia initially told The Guardian it was contracted to provide vaccinations for aged care residents only, but it subsequently clarified it was contracted to provide vaccinations to both the aged care residents and the workforce, but was instructed by the department to prioritise the residents. Sonic Clinical Services, brought on later, said it was not contracted to do staff vaccinations. We have not been contracted to provide in-reach vaccination services to residential aged care staff in Victoria or elsewhere and have not been involved in the tender process to do so, Chief Executive Dr Jed Foley said. The fourth company, International SOS, refused to answer questions about what it was being paid by taxpayers to do, instead referring The Guardian to the Health Department. The Health Department said all four contractors were contracted to provide vaccine administration support for registered residential aged care residents and workers across residential aged care facilities. Subsequent expert medical advice recommended against vaccinating aged care residents and workers at the same time, based on overseas experience, the department said. In response to the medical advice, the contracted providers were encouraged to focus on vaccinating residents as they are most vulnerable to the impacts of COVID-19. Earlier this week, Department Associate Secretary Caroline Edwards told Senate estimates that the four companies had shared in $76 million worth of work. United Workers' Union Aged Care Director Carolyn Smith said the differing responses showed how badly organised this process was. This is just another level of confusion, where the contractors themselves don't seem to know what they've been contracted for and what they were supposed to be doing on the ground, she told The Guardian. The government's initial plan contemplated using the in-reach teams to vaccinate residents and aged care staff at the same time, but the government received advice that residents and staff should be done separately to avoid the prospect of having both groups sick from side effects at the same time. Unions say the separate in-reach teams for aged care staff never showed up. Workers only got the vaccinations by taking residents' leftovers. The plan then shifted significantly. The government is now telling workers to get a vaccine wherever they can find one, either from GP clinics, state-run hubs, Commonwealth respiratory centres, or via dedicated aged care staff pop-up hubs. There were supposed to be 13 pop-up hubs established during May. There are only three, and they are all located in Sydney. On Friday, the government announced that in-principle agreement had been reached with states and territories to make the vaccination of workers mandatory. All of a sudden, the Prime Minister seems to be saying the problem with aged care vaccinations is hesitancy of aged care workers to have it, Smith said. That's not the problem. The problem has been, really, they forgot that aged care workers existed or were important in the process. Victoria and Queensland are also conducting targeted blitzes to give priority access to aged care workers. Queensland Health Minister Yvette Darth said the blitz meant others seeking a vaccine may be disappointed this weekend. The federal government conceded this week it did not have complete data on aged care workers, but that a survey of major aged care providers suggested that 11% of staff had received a first dose, even less were fully vaccinated. The health department said it had also engaged 50 roving teams in Victoria to vaccinate workers and residents in priority locations. It said it was discussing the work of vaccination plans further with the sector. You're listening to Stick Together, Worker Stories and Union News. 
broadcast around the country every week on the Community Radio Network. Next, we're going to hear from Dave Fox from Bendigo Trades Hall about some of the struggles that workers are facing in regional Victoria. Yeah, so tell me what, what you've been up to. I think the big highlight, 1st of May, we had our first ever May Day rally, I think, for Bendigo in such a long time. Um, we're quite pleased to get that up and running now. Yeah, tell me a bit about it. You had a breakfast, right? Yeah, well, we actually had both. We had a, a rally and a, and a breakfast after that, um, with speeches as well. Uh, and I think, as I said, this is the first one we've had for Bendigo. I think in time memorial, I think there have been uh, May Day toasts in the past, but no, no actual rally as such. So we had we started to kick that off the ground. Um, and I thought it'd be good. And actually, uh, uh, a week and a half before that, I was actually uh, in Ballarat for their. Labor Day March, which they now ha- will have on the 21st of April to celebrate the first eight-hour day of ever one that was in Melbourne and the first ever eight-hour processions. Um, that was two years later after that in 1858. So Ballarat's keeping a tradition alive and then they're obviously flowing into May Day and, and I thought it will be perfect for us to do the May, May the 1st and ask the other regional uh, councils to come in if they wish to join us. So, But we had to kick it off. I mean, I, I would love to have more people there, obviously, but... That at the same time, I think it's just like was it was the first time in a long time we had to start it off, and and so that that was certainly a highlight. Uh, kick that off from running, and I think coming out of COVID nineteen, just getting back into getting things done again. We're back reg- regularly meeting now as, as a council, um, as such. I'm I'm now vice president of the Bendigo Trades Hall Council, and Tim Sullivan's the president, and along with Lucas the secretary. I think now it's really been a big shot in the arm here to start moving Bendigo Council back on the front foot again. Mm. So tell me a bit about that. Have you got a vision or what you want to see for the future? Yeah, well, what we certainly want to do is make sure that we're now, um, you know, we're, we're certainly right out at a very active trades or council, along with the likes of Ballarat, um, certainly not just celebrating events as well, which is important, um, but also to be on the front foot everywhere in the fight for workers' interests. And I think it's I think it's uh, really important we have that for especially here for Central Victoria. As I said now, I think the council's got a good shot in the arm. I think people have come to see realise, oh, there's a little bit more buzz and excitement in the air now. We, it's not just a block of building you seem to walk past and I think just a couple of uh, union officials and other groups tend to use. It's actually, we want to be a vibrant council. Actually, you know, it's out there amongst the community at large. I guess it's a bit hard with lockdowns and everything. You know, most of my other important interest now is raising money for the Workers' Memorial, which we have yes. at the back of the um, I believe actually now we have uh, have a, a large rock that's uh, someone from the Fosterville Gold Mine is going to get to us. We're going to now do all the initial works to get all that into place along with everything else for the memorial. Um, the first International Workers' Memorial Day was on 28th of April here. Um, and uh, although it was a very small gathering, I think well, we had that off as well. Because mind you, in the last... Since the uh, previous April last year, there's been two deaths in the Greater Bendigo region. Yeah, um, I remember I talked to you about the one in in Bridgewater. But previous to that was the one at mm. uh, Tullamore, the old ordnance factory yes, there. Yep. Here. And do you see any of the uh, industrial manslaughter legislation, like how that will actually be used in any of these cases? Well, the thing is with the ordnance factory that comes under Comcare, that's a Commonwealth. Okay. Um, legislation where industrial manslaughter is only covered under the sites that cover under the, the workplace, um, sorry, the Occupational Health and Safety Act. 
2004, the Victorian legislation. Yes. Mm. Uh, hey, Australia, where this happened. Uh, that, In Bridgewater. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think it's, uh, it'd be interesting to see how far WorkSafe and these, uh, is going to prosecute that case because that's going to be the question if they do prosecute it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that's the frustrating bit when we would say it should be prosecuted. We know the culture of the place in um, we know the culture of the place, we know how you know, employees are treated and it should be a good opportunity for them to be prosecuted under that. But you'll find nine times out of the 10 that uh, WorkSafe would be reluctant to do so. Um, Why do you where, think uh, that is? Because it's so new and fresh? Like, it, I don't think there has there been a test case yet? No, there hasn't been no. a test case. And however, I mean, the fact is in the day, it's always been the reluctance of WorkSafe to prosecute. Um, I think we've had just had that problem in so long. It's just been a bureaucracy um, that's been trying hard to deal with. People think, oh, we'll get WorkSafe involved, but you find out they're not the saviours at the end of the day. They, mm. they'll, and a lot of them, and I mean, this is not trying to be a personal point scoring, but a lot of them haven't got a clear understanding of the industries. Um, they're not from yeah. there and they're just looking at them. What we have to be careful of is not to, if there's a work safe investigation, we can't just mm. go and override um, yes. any means. Yeah. Well, they them to carry that out. Mm. Mm. So, how to put pressure on for them to actually do test this legislation, that, I guess that's the. Uh, yeah, well, yeah. That, that's a big question. How are we going to put pressure on? I mean, it has to be both the political but the public pressure as well. Mm. Uh, I think that that's, and, uh, and if it means a minister has to. Uh, to instruct someone to do it and say, yeah, you know, um, and I think sometimes that has to happen as well. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying uh, the, the ministers don't do that, respected ministers don't do it, but sometimes there's even reluctance from them. Oh, well, look, you know, the, we're, I'm just the minister. Well, hang on. You should be actually directing your senior service there to actually prosecute the case. As simple as that. Legislation's great to have it in there, but if it's not going to be used, it's, yes. it's pointless. Okay, so uh, we just hope that the legislation can actually be used to prevent more deaths. Exactly. So what are the issues that regional workers are facing? Well, look, obviously, pay issue is always the big one. Um, yeah. that I obviously, I mean, but I think I'm actually a very big concern, especially across regional Victoria, is like, oh, I think a lot of people just want to hang on to their employment uh, at the time. They can't. There's some places... Some and some workers out there will accept a lower than average increases in their pay because they know for well that they need to, um, they need it's more important to retain their employment at the time. Now, I'm not saying it's, um, I totally agree with it. Um, no. be, look at that, we do have that issue. This is not what it's not unlike Melbourne, where if you do finish up in a job, you don't have to move, you can then look elsewhere. You just got to may have to drive an extra half hour each day or 15 minutes to get mm. somewhere, but. Here in the regional um, Victoria, if you lose your job, they're not what required to actually go and find work in another town altogether, or that you might have to relocate. So it's certainly uh, that's always a big top one on uh, on the back of everyone's mind as well. Obviously, there's certain site um, issues they might not look at, but usually it's the job security side of things. I think it's always the big one up here at the moment. I mean, COVID nineteen certainly showed that as well. Although with manufacturing, it, that continued quite well even in the last year. But the fact is they know when there's an economic downturn, it could possibly, you know, if, if, if a place closes up, it closes up. Mm. And is there potential for that, you think? I mean, look, we're Nestle at Tongalo, it's a dairy factory. Um, mm. That's closing 
now. Um, and Tongal is only a small community, um, but then there's people travelling around for miles. But for those that work there, now I've got to travel, try and find work one of the major regional areas like Echuca or um, Shepparton, if they're lucky. Or maybe, hopefully, uh, other food companies may want to pick them up. So what's their reason for closing? Surely Nestle is like such a huge company, they wouldn't be, you know, under the pump from COVID. They, are, well, they make all sorts of cues. It, it comes down to one thing, profit. They won't yeah. look for further their profits. And it means if you're closing a plant down, move, locating it offshore, mm. uh, this is the debt mind you and in, interesting interesting fact that china was one of our biggest exporters of uh, dairy um we export a lot and because of all these uh, trade relations and diplomatic relations have turned horribly south uh thanks to uh scott the scott morrison government uh grabbing his orders from washington and uh, wall street to uh wave the um to go on the China bashing exercise, this is the problem we've got. Another classic example was um, James Strong cans in, in Kyabram. Now mm. they make actually they make the tin cans for for dairy products. It's all exported to China. Well, early this year, entering in January, and that's when I had to self isolate for fourteen days. I was in New South Wales. I was one of those many people in Victoria that were caught out on the other side of the border, and oh, so no. and not very happy about that. But anyway, no. it's. I get the call when I'm um, saying, oh, yeah, we've got redundancies happening as well. And it's just basically, they've got to try and pick themselves up again. But because any decision like this, and this is the thing, yeah, well, they don't realise on a federal level, they don't realise in any boardroom in Washington or, you know, it doesn't, you know, New York or London or Tokyo, they make these decisions. They don't realise the effects this has on the local economy here. They, they might even put a letter out, oh, we're sorry, we have to do this. They're not sorry. They're not absolutely sorry at all. Otherwise, they would have been doing doing something to off, offset all this um, as well. And yeah. But they haven't. I think one the upside of it, though, uh, as everyone uh, does have to think, we do need to get manufacturing back happening here, especially this state. And um, COVID-19 really exposed it just how... Uh, how import dependent we are. Um, mm. There were actually places that had to slow down because we couldn't get the supplies. Yep. There were the imports, and now they had to either start their own own manufacturing again, which was good. Um, others had to come back in-house, but others had to wait for whales until they start having parts come back in again. Mm. And they show you how vulnerable we really are. Mm. Yeah, I was talking with Max Ogden a little while ago and he was talking about uh, co-ops. Do you think this could be something for workers at these factories making the cans or at the Nestle factory? Yes, um, well, I mean, that's part of our state branches um, policy anyway. If a factory closed down, we should help those workers pay over run it. And, I mean, it'd be, it's a step forward in the right direction. It's not, mm. say, the solution. Everything we're going to, you know, it's all just going to be cooperatives and the world's going to be wonderful. <laughs> yeah. but the reality is, in the day, it, it is a step forward in the right direction. And, uh, and I think it's a good way to um, have both community and worker uh, cooperation in this to uh, have a proper co op. So, uh, like, Betty, especially if anything that is generated, like wealth and generated, can actually put back in the immediate community as well for their own needs. Um, and But, I mean, unfortunately, we're still with this competition and everything else, but I think it would be a step forward in the right direction. I think that's what we need to do. I know the United Workers' Union have got a very similar policy. It's good, and I hope that many other unions would adopt it as well because I think it's not just manufacturing, but I think we're a lot of uh, other key areas as well where we need to actually look at the cooperative model um, for a way forward, especially in regional Australia uh, where it's a little bit more uh, vulnerable to economic loss. That's it for Stick Together this week. Thanks to you for listening and thanks to Dave Fox from Bendigo Trades Hall for speaking with us. 
Stick Together is produced at 3CR Studios in Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. The podcast is available at 3cr.org.au and you can contact the producers of the show at sticktogether3cr at gmail.com or by calling 03 9419 8377 and leaving us a message. Remember, wherever you are, whatever you do, there's a union for you. I'm Rebecca Mays. Catch you next time. <laughs>